Let's give our attention to 1 Kings chapter 1. We'll read it in its entirety. Now, David, uh, now King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. And so they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag the Shunammite. They brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful. She was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men, were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen, fattened cattle by the serpent's stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men of Solomon, or, uh, the, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your own son, Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and that he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking uh, with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber, and the king now was very old. And Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and he has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he is not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass, when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in, and they told the king, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me, and that he shall sit on my throne? 
For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance. And he has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about, my lord the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king, and the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule. Bring him down to Gahon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him to be king over Israel. And then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen, may the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon, and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelathites went down, and had Solomon ride on King David's mule, and brought him to Gahon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent, and anointed Solomon, and they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! All the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. And then Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, and he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came, and Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man. You bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelathites. And they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gahon, and they have gone up from there rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed, and the king also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled, and they rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar 
And it was told to Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hair shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came, and he paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your home. Well, ever since David's affair in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David's own reign has been one marked by radical indecision. Even as we rehearse the broad scope of the narrative of 2 Samuel, think of David's own son Amnon who raped his own sister. What is David's response? says that David was vexed, but that he did nothing. Next, we find that Absalom, um, Amnon's younger brother, is so angry at Amnon's deed that Absalom then slays Amnon, and then after that incites his own insurrection against his father David. And yet, despite all of this, what is David's response to Absalom? Indecision. He's a king who does nothing. Here is an utterly indecisive man. Here is a man who ever since his great fall is a man who is not able, it seems, to make the right decision, particularly as it relates to his own sons. Here is a man who is not able to tell his own sons no. And now we find here in the opening chapter of 1 Kings that David is nearing the age of 70. He is old, and he is cold. And though the opening years of his reign were marked with such wonder uh, and such longing for the establishment of a kingdom of peace, we recall the Lord's own words to David after uh, his affair with Bathsheba, uh, that your house will be divided. And David does not know what to do. Here we have a man who is utterly impotent. What a contrast it is seeing David near here at his own old age, uh, in contrast to what we read of him in First and Second Samuel. Here is a man who has had over 20 children from at least eight wives. That is not to count the number of children that he had from the number of concubines that he had. Here is a man that we might say was full of strength and vigor in his uh, young age. And now we find that not even uh, the prettiest girl in Israel is able to keep David's blood running. It's rather interesting solution that David's uh, uh, close advisors have. Here's a man who's not able to keep warm, so what do they do? Do they throw log on the, uh, you know, on the fire? No. Do they give him more blankets? No. Rather, they throw a Miss Israel pageant. And yet, even the crowning queen of the pageant is not able to get his blood flowing. I think there's a certain play on words here. It gives us a picture of a king who was once competent, yet now impotent. Four times it says in this chapter, David did not know. 
First time, of course, being uh, with respect to uh, this uh, Miss Israel, as it were, Abishag. It's very clear he is not intimate with her. David did not know her, and yet that picture, that it puts it in such gentle ways without being scandalous, but it makes it known that David, as it were, behind closed doors, is a picture uh, of the nature of his reign over the whole nation. Here is an impotent king. Here is an ignorant king. Again, this, this repetition in the Hebrew of David's inability, his lack of knowledge uh, regarding the things around him. Not only does he not know Abishag, but he also does not know, verse 11 and verse 18, that his son Adonijah has crowned himself as king, even while the present king of Israel is still alive. And yet there's a fourth thing that David does not know. Again, there's a certain play on words in the Hebrew here in verse 27. As David not only does not know what Adonijah has done, and grasping for the crown himself, uh, but David has not made known publicly who the true successor to the kingdom will be. And so why we have all these men coming to David saying, Lord, my Lord, have you not made known to us who the true heir of the kingdom is? Again, considering all the children that David had, this is an important question. And yet this fourfold repetition that David did not know or he did not make known, that refrain drives home this particular point that we have an ignorant king who sits upon the throne. A king lacking in wisdom sets the stage for what is going to come in the following chapters. It is the great tragedy, of course, as as we all look to David, particularly in 2 Samuel, for all of his triumphs, for all the promises that were given to David, particularly 2 Samuel chapter 7, as the Lord had vowed and made a covenant with David that that he will establish David's throne forever. We now look at the end of his life and say, is this an utter tragedy? How bleak is this? Do we have yet another king like Saul? You know, it's my opinion that I think the the, the downfall of Saul might be the greatest tragedy of the Old Testament. Because here's a guy you're really rooting for at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And yet we have a guy who utterly apostatizes by the end. And now we're left with that lingering question in the opening chapter of Kings. Is David just another Saul? Do we have here an impotent king, an ignorant king? Will the kingdom fall into disarray? Will it fall into, and, and clash and devolve into this massive civil war as the nation doesn't even know who the true successor ought to be? Well, if David's kingship is one at this point at least marked by ignorance, then Adonijah's kingship is one of arrogance. We see the description of Adonijah as the pretender king here in verses 5 to 10. David is not even dead yet. Adonijah's own father has not even expired. And yet Adonijah moves in for the crown. Verse 5, he exalts himself. He declares himself to be king. He prepares his own horse and chariot. What king prepares his own horse and chariot? That is something that's to be done for the king. 
Here is a pretender to the throne. Even the description of Adonijah is letting you know that this man is not the man you should be rooting for. It's so interesting when you look at various commentaries on things like this. There are a lot of commentaries that will say that Adonijah has uh, the, the, the rightful claim to the throne. And to be honest with you, by outward appearances and circumstances, there might it seems to be some legitimacy to this claim. On the one hand, Adonijah is the oldest surviving child, not Solomon. Next to Absalom and uh, some of these other brothers that have died in First uh, and Second Samuel, if you go and you read through the family line of David, you find that it is not Solomon that is the oldest son. It is Adonijah. So we start to think, well, again, why does this confusion reign throughout the nation? Because Adonijah, it seems at least on surface level, appears to have a legal claim to the throne. He is the oldest son. Why shouldn't he be king is the question we should be asking. And yet, something is amok. Because when we see that Adonijah has his own crowning coronation party that he throws for himself, Notice that he invites his entire family, except for Solomon. Huh. Why is Adonijah inviting all of his family, all of his brothers, all of his siblings, except for one other brother? In fact, a younger brother. You know, even if we look at the family tree, you might go, well, Solomon must be the youngest. No, you think of that paradigm. Uh, so often that we see in the Old Testament about the younger serving the older. Well, maybe the Solomon's the youngest. Maybe the Lord's uh, operating according to this paradigm. No, it's not even that. He's, it looks like Solomon is number 10 or 11 out of 20. He's the middle child. There is no reason, humanly speaking, that we should expect Solomon to be the king. Not only that, he's the son of David's illegitimate affair with Bathsheba. You remember when David uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba. Of course, the the offspring of that union dies uh, in childbirth. And yet, we read that the Lord comes to to comfort Bathsheba in the midst of her loss. And he comes to comfort her in a particular way. Through the word of the prophet. You read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and 1 Chronicles chapter 28. That as the word of the Lord comes to comfort Bathsheba, it comes with this particular promise that Solomon is the one who will reign as king. Though he doesn't have the, the legal right uh, by being the firstborn, though he uh, does not um, by any stretch look like he should be the proper king as he is now the offspring of an adulterous union, yet the Lord in his mercy has already spoken privately through the word of the prophet Nathan Uh, that Solomon will be king. And sure enough, you you notice this. When when Solomon is born, David gives Solomon a very particular name, and it's not Solomon. What does he name him? It's Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. 
David knows who the true king is, and yet we find that David has not yet made it publicly known who the true successor to the kingdom will be. Surely it seems that Adonijah must have known this story because now as Adonijah grasps for power in his father's uh, final moments, Adonijah invites everybody to the party except for the one who has been promised the crown. This is an act of mutiny. This is a man who is using uh, the, the uncertainty of an impotent father and the way in which his father has not made the true successor known. He plays that to his advantage to try to grasp for the rightful claim as being the anointed Messiah when he is, in fact, the anti-Messiah. Here we have a picture of the Antichrist. Consider how Adonijah is described even in this passage here. Adonijah is described in one sense as another Absalom. He's exceedingly handsome. You see that in verse 6. Isn't that how Absalom was described in the war against David and Samuel? Here is a son whom David could never say no to, just like Absalom. In fact, there is an explicit connection there in verse 6 where it says that Adonijah is born, as it were, next to Absalom. When you hear and read about Adonijah, you should be thinking this is a second Absalom. This is a second insurrectionist. This is a man who has all the looks. He is handsome, which, by the way, is the same description of Saul. Everybody wanting to look for all the outward features of who the proper king of Israel should be. They're not looking at the heart. They're looking at who stands head and shoulders above the rest. And here's a man making a claim for the throne. Adonijah is the mirror image of his older brother. Even when it says that uh, he has prepared 50 horsemen in advance, it's the exact same number that Absalom prepared when he mounted his own insurrection against his father. History is repeating itself. What is going to happen? Adonijah conspires with others for support. He gathers to his side David's reckless and bloodthirsty general, Joab. A man we'll consider in a few weeks' time. A man who has uh, committed great bloodshed even in times of peace. He has not only gathered to himself another general under David's auspices, but he has also gathered Abiathar from the cursed house of Eli. Uh, even if we re- remember in the opening uh, chapters of 1 Samuel, there is that curse that is placed on Eli's house where the Lord says to Eli that there will not stand among you any of your sons. They will all be expelled from the priesthood. You continue reading through Samuel, and it comes a particular moment where Saul slaughters all of Abiathar's family. The only one to survive this mass slaughter is Abiathar himself. And yet, though he is um, the the grandson or great-grandson of of Eli, David in his kindness offers uh, such tender mercy in taking Abiathar in under his wing. And yet, for all of David's kindness, this is the thanks that he gets. While the king is sick, Notice this, it does not say that, that Abiathar casts his lots in uh, with Adonijah over and against Solomon, but that he is conspiring against David. This is a mutiny of the highest order. Also consider Adonijah's coronation site. It takes place at the serpent's stone at Enrogel. A couple things to note about here. Enrogel ends up being the hiding spot during the war against Absalom, again in First and Second Samuel. 
Why would one ever have a a coronation uh, of a king in a hiding place? You you think of the the coronation of of, uh, now King Charles III. It doesn't happen in a private room. It It is on for the whole world to see. It is a public spectacle. And yet here, the, the, the coronation of, of Adonijah takes place under the cover of darkness. Why is he seeking to be crowned? Why is he seeking to crown himself in secret if he is truly the legitimate heir to the throne? Secondly, you should note the, the location. It's not just in Rogel. Uh, the author of Kings goes out of his way to say it takes place at the Serpent's Stone. And one of my favorite kind of British, British uh, sketch comedy duos has this one particular sketch where uh, the, the two individuals, Mitchell and Webb, have uh, they, they play uh, two Nazi soldiers on the eastern front of the Soviet Union. And they're both decked out in their, their Nazi uniform. Uh, and, and as they're fleeing, as the Soviets are advancing upon the Nazis and the Nazis are fleeing, they, these two German, German soldiers, both named Hans, by the way, look to each other, and one says to the other, Hans, he says, what Hans? He says, I have a question for you. I've been thinking. He says, what, what have you been thinking? He says, well, are we the baddies? He says, why would you say that? He says, well, it's looking at our uniform this morning, and on our helmets, there are skulls. And he says, oh, you're just believing American propaganda. He says, well, they didn't make our uniforms. You know, Sinclair Ferguson makes this uh, very uh, uh, wise point that there's so much of Scripture that in one sense could be seen as a footnote to Genesis 3.15, where the Lord himself describes the history of the human race as being the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And here now Adonijah is being crowned at the serpent's stone. That should be tipping our hat off to something. So often in the Old Testament, the, all, the authors of Scripture will identify wicked rulers uh, with the serpent in some way, shape, or form. You think of David in his battle against Goliath. As it says that Goliath in the Hebrew is covered not simply in a, a coat of, of chain mail. It says he's covered in a coat of serpent scales. Even as David comes and he hacks the head off this serpentine figure. You read in Isaiah and Ezekiel uh, where the prophets refer to Pharaoh as the great serpent. Or you even think of John the Baptist who will peer into the hearts of the Pharisees and say, you brood of vipers, offspring of the serpent. And now here we have Adonijah claiming the crown for himself at the base of the serpent's stone. Here is the baddie. What we find here is that this is not simply a period piece uh, uh, full of uh, palace intrigue as if we were uh, reading of the exploits of uh, the various uh, family monarchies in British history. Rather, what we are seeing transpiring here is a battle over the advancement of the kingdom of God. Remember the Lord's own promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that I will establish your throne forever. And now what hangs in the balance is the question of who the successor to David will be. Which of David's sons will inherit the throne? 
As David, the impotent king and the ignorant king, has refused to make it known, now confusion abounds, and now an arrogant king has come to lay claim uh, for uh, a throne that does not rightfully belong to him. And we're left asking, will God establish the throne, this everlasting throne, as he has promised? Or will the false Messiah, will this Antichrist, reign in his stead? And in the midst of it, we are left with the question, what are God's people to do? Well, here we find that God's wisdom comes to his people through the prophet. And it is through heeding the word of the prophet that God's chosen king is put on the throne. This uh, highlights the, the, the centerpiece of chapter 1. So much of chapter 1 focuses on uh, uh, Nathan and Bathsheba's attempt to rouse David from his slumber. To rouse him from his impotence for David finally to make the proclamation as to who the true king of the kingdom is going to be. And it leads us to the third king in our narrative. Not only do we consider David as the ignorant king and Adonijah as the arrogant king, but now we find who the truly anointed king is to be. Now Nathan plots to arouse an indecisive David to action. You see that there in verses 11 to 53, as uh, the story is repeated in, in, uh, in triplicate form, where, where uh, Nathan says to Bathsheba what they're going to do, and then they go do it, and then Nathan comes and does the exact same thing that Bathsheba does. They're trying to get David to come to his senses. They bring to his attention, they make known to David Adonijah's conspiracy. Bathsheba makes it very clear what's going to happen. She says, my lord, the king, if, if Adonijah claims the throne, myself and Solomon will be counted offenders. What does she mean? We're going to be put to death. I mean, you read any type of succession story, that's exactly what happens to rival claimants to the throne. Bathsheba says her life is at stake. Her son, the beloved of the Lord, Jedediah, Solomon, his life is at stake as well. And then as she as, is speaking these words to David, Nathan rushes in to confirm these words. We find here attention. The kingdom hangs in the balance on David's response. Will David continue to do nothing as he did nothing with respect to Amnon's uh, 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 rape of his sister? Will he continue to do nothing with respect to Absalom's insurrection? Will he finally be roused to act? Will David remain an impotent king? Or will he reclaim his former glory? Well, here, unlike Saul, the story of King David does not end in tragedy. We might describe this as David's redemption. David acts. And he declares who the proper successor to the kingdom will be. He says, it's Solomon. Notice the, the, the urgency in David's language. David doesn't say, well, let's get all of our affairs in order and, and next week we'll, we'll set up a proper coronation time. Or, or hey, let's, uh, let's set it for Friday. David says, no, Solomon's going to be crowned today. No longer do we have an impotent king on the throne. David now acts decisively. The ignorant king has regained his kingly vigor. He heeds the words of the prophet. He acts with wisdom, and the kingdom is established. 
Verse 28, Solomon is crowned king. Notice that he is not self-appointed. He does not lay claim to this uh, power for himself. In fact, you'll notice Solomon has not yet even spoken. All these things are happening where Solomon is not even present. But David says this is something that's been appointed for him. Unlike Adonijah who appoints himself, here is an office that is appointed to Solomon. It is bequested to him. And so he is appointed by the king and he is anointed by both prophet and priest. Not only that, we see that this is not a private affair. It becomes a public celebration. Unlike Adonijah's coronation, which takes place under cover of darkness, we find that the whole city is invited to this coronation on today. It's a last-minute party. And also notice the location of Solomon's coronation. It doesn't take place at the Serpent Stone. It's located at the River Gihon. If you were to do a word study, you ask, where is that river located? We find that is the name of one of the four rivers that flow from Eden. Here we find, I think, a subtle picture of paradise regained. Here is not the serpent who triumphs, but here the kingdom being brought to its Edenic glory, as it were. Here Solomon, and we will see this picture laid out uh, in the coming chapters, is being presented to us as another Adam for better or for worse. As here is a king who rules in wisdom and power and glory and a king who will act in his sin just like his father Adam where his sin will drive the kingdom into disarray in chapters 10 and following. And yet here we find hope as the transfer of the kingdom transpires successfully from David, not to Adonijah, but from David to Solomon. And you see a Benaiah's blessing, this blessing that uh, is given and pronounced upon uh, Solomon, this uh, figure who is to reign as a new Adam, may his government increase. And it is met with resounding acclaim. As the people shout with joy that Solomon has been made king, it is such a joyful shout that it says that the noise splits the earth. And now in an ironic twist, the ignorant king is not David, but it is now Adonijah. Because as Adonijah and his buddies hear this rumbling that's going on, they go, huh, what's that noise about? Now they're the ones who are left in the dark. Now Adonijah is the ignorant one. He has no clue what has happened. The public coronation and celebration as he asks, what is all the ruckus? And yet, as he and his buddies uh, receive news of Solomon's enthronement, it's almost humorous. News comes, what's, what's that, all that ruckus? Oh, Solomon has been king. And it simply says that all of that and Isaac's friends, they get up and they leave. All of his friends scatter. He now has no support. He is now left on his own. Adonijah, uh, at the news of the enthronement of King Solomon, all, Solomon, all of the true king's enemies scatter like cockroaches. Adonijah included. 
Verses 49 and 50, Adonijah seeks refuge in the tabernacle. And it is here that we finally hear Solomon speak. And what we have before us is not an indecisive king, but a king who acts very decisively. And yet we have before us not an arrogant king like Adonijah, but a king who acts in compassion and mercy. Here we see the first act of this new anointed king being uh, not a tyrant, but one who rules in a firm yet merciful justice. Notice what he does. Notice uh, there in verse uh, 52, as, as word reaches Solomon uh, that Adonijah has fled into the tabernacle, he's grabbed onto the horns of the altar, he is, he is he's crying out for mercy. How would you respond if your own brother betrayed you and had threatened your very life and the life of your mother, claiming the kingdom from you? Yet Solomon comes and he has Adonijah brought forward and Adonijah weeps with tears. And Solomon, it's not sloppy agape, but it's also not retributive. It's not vengeance. Solomon simply puts it to Adonijah. He says, if you are a worthy man, then you will find life. And yet if evil remains in your heart, death will destroy you. And he gives Adonijah another chance. The kingdom is established, and it is a kingdom that is established in justice and mercy. Solomon doesn't let it slide on the one hand. Adonijah, to quote Toy Story, is quaking in his boots. And yet Solomon shows his brother, who does not deserve mercy, he shows him mercy. And of course, next time we'll consider how Adonijah responds to such mercy. But I think this chapter is significant as it sets the stage uh, for this grand historical narrative. Three kings are presented before us. David, the impotent and ignorant king. Adonijah, the arrogant king who grasps for power unlawfully. And finally, Solomon, the anointed king, who acts in a firm yet merciful justice. Three times we have before us three, the actions of three different kings. We see that here in verses 25, 31, 34, and 39 with this uh, uh, repeated acclamation, long live the king, long live the king. For some, it's long live King David. For others, it's long live King Adonijah. But ultimately, it, it leads us and points us to the true type of king that Israel needs. And that's the very question we should be asking. And it's the very type of question that kings prompts us to ask as we read of the, uh, the deeds and the acts of every king in, uh, in every successive generation, what kind of king does Israel need? It does not need an indecisive king that has been paralyzed by sin that leads the nation into confusion. What Israel does not need is an arrogant king who seeks personal gain at the expense of his people. What Israel needs is a merciful king, chosen and equipped by God to act decisively in wisdom for the peace and for the expansion of this kingdom, just as Benaniah had pronounced that benediction on Solomon. May your kingdom ever increase. And what we find here is the trajectory of this narrative sets the stage for the arrival of a fourth king, 
David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his resurrection and ascension has exalted to the heavenly throne promised to David, anointed by the Spirit. Of course, that anointed word meaning Messiah or Christ. Jesus, who himself is the wisdom and the righteousness of God. Jesus, who himself did not grasp for power even when all the kingdoms of the world were spread out before him. When the serpent himself in the wilderness said, if you would just bow down and worship me, will I give you all the kingdoms of this earth? No, we have a king who does not grasp for power, for glory. But a king who humbles himself, who humbled himself, And suffered great humiliation, not for his own sake, but for the sake of his people. And for that was exalted and raised on high. A king who gives himself to save a people. Who came, who has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A king who has come to crush the serpent's head and to regain paradise as the last Adam and the ruler of a new creation. A king who died like David died, and yet unlike David, a king who now has been raised to life everlasting, where not even death has dominion over this particular king. You see, in Solomon, we're given a prototype, as it were, a picture of the greater Solomon to come, of Christ who reigns, whose kingdom is ever-expanding, who has now broached the walls to our own hearts and who calls out to us who we, like Adonijah, have rebelled against him heinously and with great treachery. And yet the period of amnesty is called to us as well, that we would turn from our sin and bow down and worship the King who reigns in justice and mercy. Long live King Jesus. May He reign forever. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we uh, give attention to your word, we are so thankful for uh, the picture of Christ you have given in the office of the King, um, that we might understand the nature of Christ's reign, that here we have a, a King who acts decisively in mercy, in wisdom, and in justice. Uh, we pray that you would so subdue our hearts by your grace, that we would give homage to the King who reigns above all. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.